Sans Pants Radio, Australia's least coherent podcast network. Total Reboot, the only podcast on the freaking internet, baby, that dares to discuss cinema. My name is Alexi Toliopoulos, and usually I host this podcast with my dearest friend Cameron James. But joining me in the freaking outback with some freaking killers uh, in our Australian Psycho mini-series investigating psychos in Australian cinema is none other than one of our resident Australian podcast legend, Psychos himself, from One Hit Minute Productions, from the Zodiac Chronicle. It is Blake Howard, baby. Let's go, Alexi. Yes, the Driller Killer is in the house. In the house. Oh, my God. Total reboot. Is it so good to be co-anchoring this podcast? Freaking sexy ship with its new logo. All this mm-hmm. all this psycho talk is deeply arousing. It's exciting times. I'm really happy to be in the outback with you. Um, I've got my grunge uh, a flannelette and Metallica t-shirt combo. Oh. It's totally Xavier Samuel dressing like me in 1998. Love it. And I'm ready to go. Well, that is extremely appropriate because the film that we're discussing today on the podcast is a modern day Australian cult classic horror or at least i think this one is definitely building towards being a genuine cult hit we're talking about the 2009 horror film from director sean byrne called the loved ones starring one of australia's brightest stars at this time xavier samuel yeah and also robin mclevy who i don't feel like got the credit as princess that like xavier samuel goes away but like man robin mclevy crushes this movie and i think what's so awesome is for everyone who's like only been exposed to xavier samuel in his like twilight mode or Mm -hmm. rom-com mode this is so glorious to see him in this schlocky dirty little grubby outback horror film as his kickoff point and like it is the launch pad like he really shows it all in this movie Re- hot, deep emotionality but some of the most like grotesque torture that i think is c- committed oh. to the contemporary screen it's like a real ripper and i think it just came out of left field and sean byrne just came out uh, they say some filmmakers come out like fully formed and i think sean byrne mm-hmm. had tinkered with some shorts and stuff but man yeah it just came out so fully formed this thing it's it's a real oh. little, little gem that is why I've got you here today, Blake, because I really want to get your mind around this film in particular, and especially I want to get you in for the Australian Psycho miniseries because oh, thank you, man. it is something that's very close to my heart in kind of investigating these films and kind of getting an understanding on like why Australian art and Australian cinema is so obsessed with like investigating, celebrating, and condemning these dangerous psychos and this was a conversation i was having with you not too long ago where i brought this idea up for a mini series i was going oh i'm not sure if we can do it but you were so encouraging to me like (laughs) you have to do it you have to do it well i think i dude i think we were just chatting and you were talking so passionately about it and you're so spot on and the series has been great thus far because it's 
it's really weird. Like, it's really weird. It's compelling. We've got some theories together that we'll talk about. Mm. But as soon as we kind of collectively stumbled on, like, Australian Psycho, I'm like, well, dude, there's the title. If you don't do it. Like yeah. it's it's all over. Like I'm the guy I'm the guy who said the words one heat minute and there was two hundred episodes in four years of my life just gone in like an instant. You yeah. Know? So I, I, I understand the psycho impulse, but man, look, it's it is really fascinating. And I think there's something so I don't know, inherently cinematic about a protagonist mm. that is a psycho or, or an yeah. antagonist that's a psycho, especially a very magnetic antagonist mm. or alluring or just flat out hilarious, as I'm sure you're going to cover in the series. But it's just because that line of grotesque, that line of, uh, I don't know, like sometimes it can be like sexy and alluring and magnetism mm. and then violence. It just is all bundled up. Like that, that little thing of unpredictability is just so great. And, you know, this movie is a bundle of unpredictability in and of itself. Yeah. But I, I feel like that's, that's just this great energy of psychos. They, they carry mm. with it this level of unpredictability that, um, that for the entirety of the film, you just have a tension. Because when you've got a psychopath right at the center you are uneasy even if it's mm. unconscious for the entire thing. And I think that that unease is something that maybe Australian cinema just loves to be a bit kind of uh, masochistic in its construction. Yeah. Like they want us to be like, they want us to feel gross the whole time. And I think that that's like a real, a real hallmark of Aussie, Aussie psychos. And I think that this is a film that I chose specifically because there is this weird fascination. Like there's this whole class of uniquely Australian horror films that specifically almost celebrate like this cursed idea of these dangerous serial predatory male psychos in rural Australia, in the suburbs, in the outback and in the bush. And I think these like, sure, they're a reflection of true crime stories that have left this blistering cigarette burn on our national identity, like these backpacker killers, yes. Ivan Malat, John Bunting, who is dramatized in Justin Curzel's Snowtown, which I will tell you is probably my one of my least favorite Australian films of all time, <laughs> but a very, very significant film from a very, very significant and incredible Australian filmmaker. And I'm also like thinking of stuff like Mick Taylor, the killer in Wolf Creek, Stephen Curry's character in the very good indie kidnapping thriller Hounds of Love from just like, I think about five or six years ago as well. Yeah, that's a good one. And also a terrifying uh, have you seen this film? This re I found this film extremely terrifying. Uh, the Killing Ground, starring Aaron, Aaron Peterson. Peterson. Yeah, it's a it's yeah. a it, that that's a grubby, disturbing little film. Uh, uh, kind of an unredeemingly one. So I, I think uh, that's another hallmark of these Australian horror movies is that, like, when we go bleak, we go bleak. Like in America, they Absolutely. made Armageddon and Deep Impact, and like the, you know the asteroid just glances off the planet, and then in Deep mm. Impact, it, it causes a big wave, but humanity survives. And in Australia, we're like, cool, nice story, hold my beer. Here's these final hours. <laughs> it's all over. Like there's a magma yeah. wave of destruction. It's done. And I feel like we've got that same ethos with these kind of outback horrors. But you made a great yeah. point, which is there is something sort of inherently terrifying of the scale of our country and the amount of people mm. that are in it. Like when you look at the size of the Australian continent, it's as big as the, you know, the continental United States. Mm -hmm. And we have as many people, actually fewer people than actually in Los Angeles, yeah. one city, not a state, a city, than there is in the entire 
uh, of the yeah. United, you know, in the entire country. So huge country, fuck all people, <laughs> fuck all people, and and also for for those fuck all people, they could give less of a fuck about people mm-hmm. disappearing. Like when yeah. people go bush, go missing in Australian pop culture. Like the one of the f- most frightening things I think about the loved ones, and I think it's kind of the brilliance of Sean Burns, like really tidy, mm. neat, really condensed but effective storytelling is this town feels like a normal suburban town. There's been tragedy that bookends the film, but the town seems like they're getting on with it. There's clearly some weird underbelly stuff that's going on, but it's like people are living their lives, people are going about their business. But as we grow into the story, we realize that this tiny town with seemingly a tiny amount of people has a bunch mm. of people that just go missing and yeah. no one like bats an eyelid. Like that is just par for the course where they live. And I think that that's a scary thought, even if it's not really true, but they're just scratching that itch in Australian cinema. Yes. is so scary. I think that you're kind of like onto something there because a lot of these films that I just mentioned uh, that are either based on true stories, literally, or kind of like based on the urban legends around these true horrifying stories of like serial attackers out in the bush that mainly capture people traveling through it. Um, I think that there's either there's more of a fascination with the killer themselves and kind of like creating a mystery around them or creating like a, a mythology around them or trying to rationalize them or to understand them by portraying them rather than kind of like the empathetic uh look into the victim or look into like the into understanding that side of the story so much i think there kind of is you're kind of right in like the way that like the media covers these stories or the way we kind of embrace those stories as part of like our cultural identity it is like it is in that fascination rather than like being like terrified like there's a kind of a gross fascination with it rather than being like the empathy of going like oh we got to find these people it's more like <laughs> well what if it could happen to me and it's I, you know I, it could happen to anyone out there and if you think about like wolf creek one versus wolf creek two um mm-hmm. like i think it's almost as stark a difference in the portrayal of the protagonist as it is in like first blood versus first blood part two right yeah. like you got Mick Taylor in the first one's Ivan Milat. It's as scary as it fucking yeah. gets. That movie is deeply disturbing. And then in the second one, he's Tony Abbott. <laughs> like, he's like the ex-Prime <laughs> Minister of Australia dishing out an Australian citizenship test with a knife. Like, it's... Yeah. And then riding a horse. It's it's one of the funniest... Uh, it's a movie that went from, like, one of those disturbing horror movies to, like, just a slasher, hilarious movie the second time around that I kind of had a perverse pleasure and adored because I was like, this is like what we figured out. And what I guess the filmmakers figured out was like, it's actually when we, when we're trying to diagnose, I think that Australian psycho ethos is like part of like Greg McLean's approach was like, if we're trying to diagnose what it is about these people that we're so fascinated with, isn't it funny how like the people who actually run our country have this like psychopathic xenophobic energy that like, if you don't yeah. like it, I'm going to kill you. And I, I think, I think that <laughs> I just think I love it. I was just like, there is yeah. there's not a, there's not a better satire. I mean, sorry, chaser boys or, um, you know, uh, lots of, lots of our mutual friends who are such great satirists yeah. across all the networks. No apologies to fat pizza though. <laughs> you are the other ones. You're the other ones that have nailed it properly in my actual true opinion. <laughs> but yeah, like fat pizza, Wolf Creek too, like completely, mm-hmm skewered that that look at Oz because yeah. it's like you know what 
how many steps removed is the dope that you have running the country to this guy with a knife in yeah. a shed who hasn't showered in a month? Like, not that far. I, I have to agree with you because I think I was not really a big fan of that first Wolf Creek movie because it did disturb me so yeah, much. Yeah. And I didn't like the fun that it was having with it. But the second one, because it's so overtly crazy and so overtly like embracing Mick Taylor as a freaking Freddy Krueger, an Australian <laughs> Freddy Krueger, yes. bringing in the actual humor in with it. Uh, I think that that series, that franchise as it developed into two TV seasons as well, uh, got better. Like yeah. it gets better as it keeps going along. And they just announced they're doing a third cinematic film yes. this week. And uh, you know what? I probably will go see it. I'm going to go see it. I'm surprised that we're even talking right now. I'm surprised you're not starring in The Wog Boy Part 3. <laughs> like, I mean... Oh, my I, God. I, I don't. I don't know how. I, I don't know how that hasn't happened yet. I don't know if this podcast is going to help it happen. But the fact that you're still in the state is just a miracle. Mm-hmm. Well, the beauty of that being me being one of the most prominent Greek Australian critics in the country <laughs> is that surely I haven't been picked up because they need me to review it favorably. Of course, yes. so. yeah. I got to do my duty there. <laughs> but the reason I chose the loved ones instead of the other examples that we mentioned, even though they may be like more cinem- like significant to the cinematic canon when it comes to Australian Psycho, is that I think the loved ones having a creepy dad as a captor but the main villainous tormentor being a sad teenage girl preying on a vulnerable young man feels like a specific commentary on this trope in like a shoes on the other foot kind of way. And it's like an inverse of that classic final girl trope. So I think there's something very unique about this movie that is like making a direct commentary on a lot of these other genre pictures in this like very kind of detestable Australian <laughs> genre. Yeah, I, I love it because the the father played by John Brumpton, whose character's name is Daddy, which is just like mm-hmm. gross to even say. But like, I think it's sexy. <laughs> Daddy. <laughs> Daddy. Alexi and I are showing each other our chest hair right now while we're saying that. But, <laughs> but what I would say is um, like the thing I like about it, because when you talk about like the real... If, if we get authentic and real about like psychopathy and mm. people with tra- traumatic brain injuries and like just trauma in general and trauma induced like poor behaviors and how that leads people down these gnarly paths, there are gnarly movies where you see like a killer grooming a young killer. And like, there's mm. like, there's nice versions of it where you're grooming a young orphan assassin like Leon, um, yeah. the professional. And then there's... <laughs> so funny to think of that as a nice movie. It's, it's so creepy. It's, it, I, I rewatched it like, <laughs> this is so weird. Hey, it's super weird. Just like, keep his, his hand stayed on the plant. That's all that matters. <laughs> so... <laughs> So while we're keeping our hands on our plants and only through our chest hair and saying the word daddy, Mm -hmm. what I would suggest is like that this movie plays the, the John Brumpton character as grooming Robin McLeavy's Mm. princess into his image, like crafting him into his image. And it's like this halfway you can tell, like obviously she, when she's such a baby and she still kind of is a baby, like, you know, 16 or whatever, Mm. she's getting older, but he's groomed her into this learned behavior and then it's it's all for this perverse, like whatever that um, uh, perverse father daughter incestuous relationship mm. that's so tormented. And it's like instead of her becoming the victim, which she should be, that's the impulse, right? Your heart immediately mm. goes out to her. You want to empathize with that, and then she's like, "Dad, 
let me have a turn of the drill. Like, and you're like, I can't, I can't empathize with this maniac. And she's, oh. she's making scrapbooks. There's Casey. Yeah. I mean, she's playing Casey we Chambers. We got to get into it, dude. Oh, we got it. Is, we're chomping at the bit to talk about this movie, but these are all the reasons why I picked it for the Australian Psycho miniseries. So let us begin our descent into the basement, in the living room of the loved ones. Can you go to the dance with me? I'm going with Holly. Guess who asked me to the dance? Tell me. Who is she? I'll never tell. Pretty as a picture. Bring the hammer, Daddy. The Loved Ones from 2009, directed and written by Sean Byrne. We're going to kick things off, Blake, playing a little game called Love That Logline, where I found a logline for this film online, a summary, a synopsis. I'm going to read it out to you, and I want you to tell me if you either love it or hate it, you got to rate it. I'm going to rate it. And I don't want to influence your decision on this one, but I am going to tell you this goes either one or two ways. This is either the best <laughs> synopsis I've ever found or the absolute worst one I've ever found, in my <laughs> opinion, but I don't want to influence your rating. Sure. So sure. this one is from Google. When you look up this movie, this is the very first thing you see is this synopsis. It is from Google. In order to avoid a ghostly figure in the road... Brent Mitchell, played by Xavier Samuel, wraps his car around a tree, killing his father. While his mother goes to pieces, Brent escapes into a marijuana-fueled world of pain and guilt. That's the whole synopsis for this movie. (laughs) As Google says it. I love it. I love it because it's so dumb. It literally is the dumbest. It's, It's taking, it's spoiling... The first shock of the movie, the first jump mm-hmm. scare of the movie, yeah. drastically spoils it's- it. <laughs> and, and There's a legit spoiler in it. But the legit spoiler. And then it <laughs> it devalues all of the like the genuine angst that it then gets yeah. surprised out of us in the movie. So mm-hmm. I'm gonna love it because it's so dumb. Like I love it because it's yeah. the stupidest synopsis, one of them I've ever heard. It all, like, you know, it's got nothing to do with anything we've been talking no. about so far. This is more like, it sounds like you're going to watch a freaking Gus Van Sant, like, oh dra- weepy dramedy This is Elephant. About it's a Elephant guy, too. Yeah. <laughs> it's about a guy, like, waking up from his drug-fueled, like, depressive haze. And I timed it. I rewatched the movie after reading that synopsis, and I timed it. That covers exactly the first 13.33 minutes of oh, the cool. movie. Don't worry, there's only an there's only an hour and seven to go. Not much else could possibly happen in an hour and seven minutes. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Oh, that God. 13 minutes and 33 seconds. Let me tell you what happens next. This kid is kidnapped by a man, taken back to the home that he shares with his daughter, who has a huge creepy crush on this fella, and he brings him home on the eve of their school formal, aka their prom, and basically makes an at-home creepy formal for his daughter where he's been captured and tortured and tormented and presumed dead and missing. There is... The entirety of this movie is left out of that synopsis. Yeah, like, the fact that he's kidnapped by a a father-daughter psychopath team 
who torture him into fulfilling her dream formal date mm-hmm. is the story of the love that's the whole movie. <laughs> that's the movie, not a car accident at the beginning. Spoilers. That like tells you that his father dies and that he's in a deep depression because that's all character. But yeah, wow, so good. I think to kick things off in this discussion, we have to discuss Lola Stone, the psycho of this film herself, played by Robin McLeavy. I think that this is a really difficult and incredible performance. Uh, She is a pretty young actor. She's around like 27 or 28 making this movie, playing a teenager. And uh, this was a character kind of built in close collaboration with the director. And uh, he kind of gave her the instructions to prepare for this role by researching the real-life serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer. And a lot of, like, the stuff that this this character gets up to is based on Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer fantasized about and tried uh, doing the most heinous act in this movie, which is drilling a hole into the forehead of his prey. And then he would pour, excuse me, guys, it's going to get quite rough describing some of these things. Uh, He would pour like an acid into the head, hoping to turn them into like... yeah lobotomized zombies basically to become his indentured servants his slaves and then she uh they do that in this movie with like boiling hot water from a electric kettle very australian uh, <laughs> interpretation of that and um she he also like kind of instructed her to like take uh in to take in information from the rob reiner movie and stephen king movie misery the kathy bates character in that and natural born killers and some of the other works of quentin tarantino and to me i think that this approach is kind of like what is the brilliance of this movie and what makes it so watchable is that it finds that balance between like cartoony and over theatrical exciting genre picture enjoyment while still having this like menace that makes it feel so uniquely potent yeah it's she she's able to chart these waters between like like unpredictable and like almost regressed like she regresses into like a like a five-year-old like she's like daddy gleeful and like jumping around and then the next second she's like i want to turn of the drill and like that's mm. so natural born killers and kathy kathy bates man far out we don't talk mm. enough about misery just as, as, yeah. as a great movie and kathy bates had that this weird perverse tenderness in that movie where she could be so tender and then incredibly brutal on a hair trigger, on an impulse, Mm. on a mood swing. And so, yeah, Robin McLeavy completely crushes it. But also I think they cast her well because she's got this kind of like, like very age appropriate. Like she's not quite like a grown woman. Like if you see Robin Mm. McLeavy now, she's like a grown woman and she's very beautiful. And so you see her, but Right back when this movie happened, she kind of still had like teenage like like facial features. She still had like that sort of puppy fat face, like in the cutest way. Like Mm. you know, like she looked young. And so when she goes up and you know inquires with Brent Xavier Samuels' character, like if he wants to go to the formal, and he's already been asked by Holly Victoria Thane's character, Mm. she just seems like like emotionally stilted right she doesn't seem like she's got it all together but absolutely and so it's like oh you you just feel bad you're like oh this poor kid and then when you realize that like this is a facade that she's been taught how to do to like ensnare this innocence is just to ensnare her prey if you like or at least point them out to daddy um it's 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 a really cool performance man and like she gets to do like everything 
everything in this movie. I think it's like such a great character in like the way that is constructed to just like have this kind of deeply arrested development type person like yeah. who's really kind of stuck in like the daggy days of being like a weird loner outside a teenager out in like rural Australia and I got to tell you the the most perfect like part of this movie the part that really sticks out to me on this rewatch that just like kind of blew my freaking brains into the <laughs> dust and stomped on them is that there is one of the most perfect needle drops in the history of Australian oh. cinema in this film the history of this genre the history of Australian cinema the history of freaking movies and needle <laughs> drops ever I would say and watching it again I'm like this should be hailed by everyone is that there is a Casey Chambers am I not pretty enough needle drop in this movie if you're not familiar with this song Casey Chambers is like a hugely successful Australian country music or modern country music modern country, artist yeah kind of like late 90s early 2000s and this song in australia at the very least from my knowledge was unimpeachable massive one of the all-time biggest hits in this it country was, you could it, not escape this you song could not escape this song and then like especially around the ages that we finished high school mm -hmm. it, if this song dropped on a playlist and it was usually like cds or cassette tapes yeah. or just the radio because you just like listen to the radio because you didn't have like mm. ipods or whatever oh, i'm a little younger few we were an mp3 player yeah, this time oh you're life, you so. were right okay you're in the mp3s <laughs> but like at the end of high school the radio play and this song would drop, and like drunken high school mm -hmm. girls would all just get in a chorus and sing this song together this like yeah. very deeply emotional song and so, yeah, like the needle drop is fire. Like it's like cream mm. in Goodfellas. Like that's how good this needle oh, drop is. Oh my lord! It's that absolutely. Good. It completely embodies the character in a very specific way. In like genuinely, a, this song is about a girl singing about her missed chances in love and life because she feels that she's not pretty enough. Yes. And it's like a deeply heartfelt song. And to be kind of used in this like cartoonish way where it's her scrapbooking, going through her scrapbooks. Oh. You're seeing her infantile bedroom that's pink and purples and dolls and toys and little posters and stuff. It feels like the bedroom of like a 12-year-old girl, not an 18-year-old girl who's about to go to her first prom. Like it feels so infantile and it captures that idea that she's stuck, that she's had this like very severe punishing like arresting of her development entirely and the song itself it's a great song it's unimpeachably a great song but it's daggy it's a daggy it's song so it's daggy. from like 10 years earlier <laughs> so she's already like this daggy little girl if you don't know what daggy is by the way we covered it in an early episode <laughs> daggy literally means the shit that is uh, stuck to a sheep's asshole because it can't shit all the way out because it's got it's got fl fluff and wool around it so it can't get the there's always gonna be little particles of the shit there and that is literally a dag but in Australia we colloquialize it it means an uncool person <laughs> someone who's not up on the trends I, I can't fucking get enough of the definitions in this series. I can't. Like, I die, I have to rewind them. So it's a pleasure to see one live. But yeah, like, she's a total dag. And one of the things I was just thinking about is, like, you see her, there's this rest of development. You mm. see her in this, like, really disturbing moment where her dad's like, oh, I got your address. And she just, like, takes her kid off in front of her dad. Yeah. And I'm like, 
Oh, this is so weird. He's leering in, the camera pans down. Masterful stuff to just create like this sense of deep unease because these are two people that only live with each other. Like there's no one else around. And this is what they're like when the doors are closed and they're in their privacy. I know. It's performative and it's fucking weird. It's so weird. But also what's so great is like Jessica McNamee, who's now like kind of blowing up because of Mortal Kombat, but she's an actor that's been in great films, actually was in these final hours as well. She plays Mia. So you get the... Like the story of two teenage girls who've maybe got mm. a really strained relationship with their dad, right? So yes. you've got this one who comes out, she's like goth chick, short skirt, goes to the, the formal with mm-hmm. a local stoner because she knows she can have a joint with him at, there and get on the booze and have a great night. And mm-hmm. and like whatever. Like there's some some issues with that relationship too if you want to get into it. But it's like watching her and then have this weird relationship and be kind of like, have some agency and like, I'm just going to like do whatever the hell I want Mm. and be myself. And then seeing this opposite inverse reaction, it's like there's weird father daughter relationships in this movie. I think that Sean Burns, like he's like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to show you there's some weird shit going on just in this town, just in general. Um, but that her scene, that, that relationship, her beautiful, like cute face. This is being like princess. So, um, Mm. her beautiful, cute face as her daddy, John Brumpton is there and he's like weird, like very ochre Aussie. Gaunt, gaunt ochre. Yeah, like, and the slick side hair that's like gross. Oh, yeah. It's just. By the way, ochre, if you're listening, that's slang for <laughs> very Australian. Like very bumpkin y, very hard. Australian up to 11. There you go. <laughs> exactly. There you go, mate, man. It's the kind of Australians that we say that they don't have any consonants in the words that they use. That's how they talk. And he kind of like captures that in like a very like slimy mm. kind of almost like also almost like eunuch. Like he's a eunuch almost in this movie <laughs> yeah. as well, who becomes like a servitude to his daughter. Like the status between them is fascinating. But you also hit on something really interesting in that B plot with like the, uh, who was the actor that you said? I can't remember her name. Her, the, it's Jessica the, McNamee. She plays the goth yeah. girl Mia. And, um, yeah. and so uh, Richard Wilson's Jamie is, uh, his, mm-hmm. is Xavier Samuel's mate. Um, who he sees yeah. at school earlier in the day. He's kind of like Jonah Hill from Superbad, like keeping in yeah. the Total Reboot series. Like he's like Jonah Hill. He's got the part. He Absolutely. goes and asks the really hot, like perverted girl to go to prom with him. And he's old or he's formal and he's like stoked. Yeah, she said yes. So and it's this interesting B plot in this film that I kind of like never really registered to me before as being so significant because uh, this character, the Mia character, her brother um, has been missing and her dad's like the local cop. He's basically sheriff of this town and he's never been able to find her missing brother who's been gone for like a year or so. He's kind of presumed dead or something and she's been deeply suffering from this. Like she's also in a parallel depression to Xavier Samuel um, who's father dies at the very start of the movie you begin to learn that there is a connection between these two things that the brother is a former victim of the killer in this film of the psychos yes and i think that what is really fascinating about this b plot and maybe why it's never registered to me before but why i think it's really 
kind of unique is that it is told through the eyes mainly of the best friend character, the Jonah Hill-esque character, who's like this emotionally unintelligent teen boy who kind of slowly understands what is going on. And I think that like this flipped perspective is kind of key to like the unique identity of this film and like why it's becoming a cult classic because everything is about flipped perspective and roles being reversed yes and what's great about him is jamie the jonah hill mate character could be like a princess like he's a bit emotionally Mm. stunted like obviously much more advanced when it comes to like ideas of sex and taking drugs and maybe a bit more open but he definitely takes a lot longer to see the emotional cues with with Mm. mia's character jess mcamee's character see the weird stuff happening and it's him dawning on it and also just the whole you know you guys in your last series you did such a great series screen ages for anyone you know, who's listening to today, like go back. And if you haven't caught up with it all, it's brilliant. And I think Thank that- you so much, dude. That's why I got you on. To this. <laughs> I can- Cam's been texting me this whole time. You bitch. You're in my chair. You better fucking compliment you- me. Bitch, you better plug our work, dude, while you're on our own show. Um, but it's such a brilliant series, but that's, there's usually the, the, the worst of the teen movie genre has these like really exploitative relationships, especially in the past around, you know, girls getting drunk and guys exploiting them or whatever. And I think what's really astute and, like, actually holds up brilliantly with the loved ones is that, like, even though there is this kind of, like, passion with them, Richard Wilson's Jamie, like, feels weird. Like, he's weird mm. about the whole interaction. He's weird about how full throat it is. He's weird about taking her home. But he's also kind of concerned for her welfare. And it's starting to dawn mm. on him that, like, the world is bigger than he is. And so it is kind of cool. That B-plot is, like, rad. And I, I agree. Like, I saw this movie when it first came out, like, you know, now more than a decade ago. And I hadn't revisited it um, until now, like, watching it again. Because I was just – it struck me at the time as a ripper. But I just hadn't got around to seeing it again. Mm. Um, but, yeah, that B-plot is – so rad and I mean, we haven't even talked about xavier samuel yet like we haven't even got to the main yeah. guy like and that b-plot was so cool i was like whoa this is like really this is really rich and it's a, a an hour 20 like it's a banger it's such a tight concise but also still has time to explore like feelings and explore like the kind of like internal quiet moments of these characters I think we should talk about the main man of this film because I think that this film, as I go back into it, it really is about like young people suffering. Young people suffering either in silence or out loud or in the public view, but people not knowing how to help them, these people not knowing how to help themselves. And I think that's something that kind of taps into those deep, dark feelings of teenagers, like that angsty feelings of having all this pressure on you and having like kind of like big dark deep life moments happening to you that you cannot escape like death like suffering and just not knowing how to compute it not knowing how to deal with it i think that xavier samuel is absolutely superb in this movie he's a young actor at this time he kind of breaks out really big time with the twilight sequel he's in the second twilight film and he's an australian actor Basically, he comes back home and he's seen as this shining beacon, this young, very handsome, very talented star who can be kind of equipped to become a movie star. And he kind of gets lots and lots of movies green lit. Like he launches productions on, dare I say, almost every Australian movie for five (laughs) or six years. It's, It's really close. 
And I met Xavier Samuel, and I met him around. Uh, he did a film in 2016 called Love and Friendship, which is an mm-hmm. one of the one of the. Uh, I guess you don't want to like slide it, but says like a lesser Austin adaption because it's a novella that it's based on. Mm. It's directed by Whit Stillman, the great Whit Stillman. So wow! So I think that's a really great movie, by the way. Yeah, I think it's really good. Really great movie. And so when I met him. I had this kind of young, angsty. He stars in the movie Newcastle. He stars in. Mm-hmm. He stars in. Um, obviously, this movie, The Loved Ones, and so he's like got that memorable kind of quality. He's a few best men. Yeah. Bait. Three D. The shark in a mall movie. <laughs> what if sharks, but in a mall? But no, he's mm-hmm. so. But he was like erudite and like. Yeah. Like very intelligent, but like sort of didn't have that ochre up to 11, had a quite sophisticated accent and stuff. And mm. I was just like, man, to, to be thrown in quite early in your career to do this like angsty, very like deeply suburban, down to earth mm. dude who's ill-equipped to deal with emotions and have to have this, you know, almost like, you know, somewhat triggering potentially like suicidal ideation kind of guy and then like get tortured for the re- remainder of the movie, literally. Um, yeah. I, I think it's... Um, he, he just surprised the hell out of me because I watched this again and I was like, man, to, to for this to be your breakout, to be a guy so raw, like, it's really cool. Like, and it just shows his talent. Um, but he's kind of like, you know, I don't know if he's stuck in like the washing machine cycle of a few best men's and those sorts of things in Twilight's, mm. but like more love and friendships and love and bones. Like just, why can't he be tortured yeah. once a year for Australian cinema? I don't I know why. I think that he's absolutely brilliant. I remember seeing this movie around that time going like, God, could this guy be the next Heath Ledger? Yeah. Because he really had that career here. He really was launching so many things. And it was Arclight Films and Darklight Films, a a studio here in Australia. They make films overseas as well, but they kind of really weaponized him into like making him a movie star here and launching the careers of directors and filmmakers in Australia and genre pictures here. But I got to say that his performance truly is something else because he essentially plays three different versions of the same character yes and almost pretty much two-thirds of this movie he's non-verbal yeah he has no dialogue for the final two-thirds of this film and these three performances i think that's how i have to break it down these three performances of this character really come together to make this unique holistic version of a person on screen version of a teenage life on screen because we meet this character uh in the first moments of the film where he's driving the car with his father and he is so happy and cheeky and typifies that australian larrikin energy which is someone that is kind of like (laughs) joyful and cheeky and someone who can kind of get away with things because they're so charming it captures like that affable nature and it's just him in one scene joking around with his dad being sarcastic doing imitations and capturing this father and son energy this bond between them and then they have that accident they swerve to yeah. avoid hitting that ghostly figure, as mentioned in the log line. Um, hey, it's not ghostly. But- it's just a bl- <laughs> that's the other thing that's so annoying mm-hmm. uh, about that log line is that it's not a ghostly figure. It's it's actually now like an Australian psycho trope. A bloodied yeah. up, bewildered person walking down the middle of the road. Like, yeah. that's as Australian Surrounded psycho as you get. Surrounded by nothing in nothing. bushlands. Nothing in bush or just expanse. Bloodied mm-hmm. person walking around bewildered and hoping that the next car isn't the person that's come to kill him. That is 100% like 
that. It's not a ghost. It's a bloodied up dude. Scares the Christ out of him. Yeah. And then when we rejoin this character, we know what they're like. We In that one or two minutes, we get a full, deep understanding of who this character is. He's someone who has... Who's a really good person who is really sweet and kind and nice and funny but not like a weakling or anything like that and then we come back to him rejoin him and now he's cold traumatized tortured and vulnerable and suffering so bad like we see that he wears like he sits in his room alone listening to like dark heavy metal music in the darkness he wears a chain with the razor blade on it we see that he is self-harming because he just cannot communicate he's trapped he's disassociative and he's just stuck and silent and you still see him trying to connect he's still wanting to connect with his girlfriend you see him still wanting to connect with his friend you see him still wanting to connect to his mum. but he's just stuck as like this island basically with no no fairies going out to kind of like bring people in they're not bringing people back he's just stuck there then we like then the third transformation of this character is he is literally tortured and in survival mode yeah and even the way his character's face changes the way that it starts from being like quite an uplifted face like smiling and bringing positive energy to the screen the way that it drops during the second transformation of this character, it's just sullen. There's, it's expressionless. And then in the third transformation, it's tensely, tightly wound with pain. It's an incredible physical performance as well. Yeah, it's he's a wild animal in that. In like the whole two the thirds of the final, like the final two thirds of the film, he's just he's screeching, he's he's gritting his teeth, he's he's he, and again with with a wordless performance like this where the, your face is the canvas and especially so much of the camera close up because it's it's really occupying the gaze of these psychopaths so they're getting in his face and they're seeing the blood on his face and the sweat and the, and just the the sheer terror and panic and pain and all those things yeah it's a ripper of a performance and i think that like the measure of really great actors at some point in their career have to do a really wordless performance or a torture performance. And, mm. um, but, and I think he, I think he does it like it, it for me, it's not like devaluing in the genre here. I think he like, he really sells it. And the sincerity of his selling the performance goes so well and complements the absurdity of the princess daddy relationship and mm. how kind of perverse and weird and just kind of gross it is on top of piled on top of literally (laughs) piled on top of the craziness of the way that they live their lives. And, and so it's, yeah, he's, he's really special. And I think like, for me, that's the two poles of like the very best Mm. performances he's ever done. Love and friendship is his like bewildered behind the eight ball, one step behind like erudite, sophisticated guy. And then this caged animal sullen, like going all those registers. I think these are like, the two best performances of his whole career, for sure. Yeah. He's he's a really great actor. And I do believe that he still has like a big, bright future. I think that, I think it flared so fast here in Australia. But the guy is such an interesting actor. I cannot wait to see like where that takes him. Yeah. Give, give him, give him some more stuff overseas. Like I can see that he's got the upcoming uh, Andrew Dominic blonde in post-production he's in the Lerman Presley project so we'll we'll see what's happening with that but yeah like give this guy 
give this guy any th- kind of thing, you know? Like, he needs to get the Evan Peters role in the next Mayor of Easttown alongside, like, Kate Winslet Oof. or something like that. Like, he, he needs to oh. just, like, he needs to know, roll in and, like, have a rad role and, like, get an opportunity to just, like, shoot the shit across from, like, a really ripper of, a like, an established actor. I think that that's, like, the yeah. kind of role that'll really suit him. Because, yeah, he's, like, he's, he's still young. Like, he's still got heaps, a he, uh, big way to go. I got to tell you, some of my favorite Australianisms in this film are in the tortures. I think that there's this great moment where they're at the dinner table for the first time and they're kind of eating this like sad charcoal or probably just like rotisserie chicken. And uh, they're served in like these very iconic of this point in time paper Australian takeaway boxes that are red and white and just have the most generic saying of good food. So many of my local takeaway joints in this exact time period had like those soggy chips because they just don't ventilate enough. Just soggy food coming out of those boxes. And then when they're torturing him because they carve the big, her initials in a heart into his chest when the dad just shakes table salt at him from like one of those big sacks of salt (laughs) canisters just shakes it at him i was like that is aussie horror this is australia this is australia yeah when i'm poking (laughs) when i'm poking an overtly oily takeaway chicken um charcoal Mm -hmm. chicken into your face that's part of it but yeah the sacks of table salt was a touch there's none of this like bags of salt like yeah you get now or the fancy salt shaker it's just sacks Mm -hmm. of table salt baby that's all you need it's so great absolutely but even i also like australian movies that like show up the ridiculousness of us adopting kind of the american ideal Mm. formal so what's so cool is that like we see that for the other characters they if they're starting their formal in the afternoon like we do in australia Mm. it's bright as hell like, it's like daylight yeah. savings. It doesn't get, like, dark until late at night. And so what's even crazier about that whole setting is you've got these little Australianisms that are in it because it's so iconic mm. for them to be Australian. But it's also, they've dressed this whole house. They've, like, shut all the windows. They've tried to make it darker because, like, it's still blaring and it's hot and it's sweaty and disgusting and the dad's hair's sweaty and Xavier Samuel's sweaty in that black suit. Like he's sweaty and gross. Like it's, there's something also about the heat that's palpable in this, in this film Mm. and then the brightness and then the darkness never quite feels so dark. Like only their dungeon is the darkest part of this movie. Like it's, it's a, that torture scene is wild enough. Um, but we did miss out on one scene talking about it because I think it's like the peak creepiness of this movie, which is despite Xavier Samuel's sullenness, he does still, he is still spoilt that Victoria Thane's Holly is like, please bang me in my little bu- bug, my VW bug. Mm-hmm. And even more creepy is that behind the sweaty mess of teenage love, there's Robin McLeavy's princess, like staring through the sweat, watching him get a BJ and being like, yeah, you're dead, son. You are so dead yeah. right now. And it's like, it's, it's like, I don't know if you wouldn't know that someone in broad daylight, like a giant black shadow is standing next to your car while you're doing that sort of thing. But more power to you, bro, before, before, <laughs> before that, because that's the, that's the kind of red herring that like, that leads them finally to discover that this stone family are stone cold psychos. Oh, I got to say as well, while we're talking about it, that, kind of climax of the movie that takes place once again in the VW Beetle, uh, I think is quite spectacular. 
spectacularly made. Yes. I love that there's like this intercutting between the girlfriend uh, played by Victoria Thane and him chasing back after them in his police car that he's now captured from the cop that <laughs> su- did not succeed in rescuing him. Uh, it's intercut with like the girlfriend and Robin McLeavy's character fighting like with a knife just in this VW Beetle and then her running away intercut with him driving the police car towards him. And then there's this perfect fake out moment where he... he you think that he's about to hit Robert McLeavy's character, but then it reveals that he's about to hit his girlfriend. And he has to swerve once again, as we do at the start of the movie, swerve away from her. And he, when he swerves, he hits the Robert McLeavy character. And it just kind of like is a fake out that builds tension in this like perfectly executed way that build against your expectations while still building this tremendous amount of tension. I don't think there's kind of like anything like that, even though this is such a trope of horror cinema is like that final confrontation with fake outs, with the reemergence of one, the once dead character lifting their hand up once again from the grave. <laughs> it kind of has all their energy, but still feels so fresh. And I've seen this movie a few times now and still I'm like, Oh man, that is good. Yeah. I, Cause I think, I think like you said they play the fake out a little bit but it's not they don't go they don't, they don't try and be too like too coy or too smug about like playing the mm. same trope again the actual scariest part is when she tosses the when she tosses her scrapbook and that hits the v-dub and then you've mm-hmm. got mia there um uh, sorry you've got holly rather they're going like what the hell was that? And then she just appears. The the the, mm. the conflict of the movie isn't almost Xavier Samuel because at that point, like he's raging down the road in the car, like trying to get the hell away. Mm. And it's actually Holly who like figured it out. Like this was the girl. She figured <sighs> it out. She prompted the cops. So the the climax is her who's figured it out. And 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 a princess like Lola like going at one another that becomes the conflict and so I think it's just it's just really clever man it's like that's mm. when, when you see a film that's like extremely competent like this on almost every level that's what makes it cult that's what makes it rewatchable because you're like it's so competent the B plot totally works like the characterizations are awesome the conflict like all the way up to the tension you kind of like you get wrapped up in the emotion and you kind of can every single time you go on the ride you forget and i think that that's like Mm. it kind of it kind of completely works for me in that regard and it's very beautifully visually told like it's told through like these slowly zooming extreme (laughs) close-ups on the eyes on the items that out there in the bush where it's wide open on that big old road feels like Leone-esque, dude. Like, we're talking Sergio Leone ECUs here. And then that build-up to that great big, near that final moment where we've got Lola with that one working arm and a knife slowly dragging herself towards them. That is such... An iconic moment, dude. That it just the it car just rips. going into reverse and just yeah. represented in a slow motion zoom in on her face, and slowly the, and, zooming in. And with the weird like wrist up with the compound fracture, you can mm-hmm. see her bone and she's like, ah, ah, still a bit of glitter on her face with the blood. It's like, oh, this movie rips. Like that's that's some good shit right there. Yeah, I think it doesn't really get better than this as far as it 
like it comes with modern Australian horror. It's so interesting. It's so subversive. It's so built up on kind of taking down the tropes of our Australian bushland terrors and making a direct commentary on them as well. I think that this is a really fabulous picture. But Blake, I want to know kind of like what are the films that this feels like? Because it feels like it's doing a direct commentary. There's almost direct inspirations with this film. What yeah, do you reckon? This is like the MTV Australian horror movie. Like it's it's mm. the needle drops uh, and you look... The needle drops are amazing, but the entire soundscape, it's extremely obvious that they're going for that MTV aesthetic. Like, I was just looking up in preparation for the show, like, a lot of the MTV collaborations that happen with Paramount, and I mm. feel like in some of these movies, like, I know that they're completely different things, but, like, hustle, it's got some hustle and flows about it. Like, I don't know, like, yeah. it's, a, you know, it's it's even got some, like, weird Orange County, you know, like, like you know, mm. like, the, those kind of movies where it's, like, really poppy, really engaged with music. Like, this film's score has things like Parkway Drive, and it's also got, you know, the Casey Chambers, and it's got Sophie Coe and Cece Martini and the Little River Band at the beginning of the film, and, and so British India. So it's got, and the Dirt Bombs, it's got like a rad, very loaded needle droppy score. And Sean Burns' cinematic language is very, uh, especially because it's so infused with these tracks, it's so music video. So for me, this whole time, I was just like, man, this is the MTV, like Sh Sean Byrne being kind of like the age who would have been able to see MTV. Like this is the music video. This is, this is rage in Australian language. This is rage's horror movie because it's 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 so technically like a film clip and takes all those cinematic cues. It's you know the protagonist is like a grunge head, like listening to wearing a Metallica shirt, you know, like climbing a mountain, like a tiny version of Mission Impossible two to nearly commit suicide, you know, like have yeah. this moment. And so yeah, like that's what I felt like hustle and flows, like just things that have got a lot of dark things but have a lot of jam and tracks, and that the mm. filmmakers use really innovative techniques to sort of play around with that because i feel like that that's that that sort of thing is this is so typical of this movie and i think as well you're like bang on with that kind of like the way that they take on american culture with like the the fake formal at the home the look the color of it it almost does feel like that washed out poppiness like a, a kind of a commentary on the poppiness but with a washed out dusty quality that feels very australian like a take on your heathers your yeah. jawbreakers your yeah. clueless in that regard kind of taking on those things i was also reading like the films that kind of inspired the development of this film with uh sean Byrne are ah, your stuff and it's like your texas chainsaw massacre yeah harry yeah, yeah. is a very big one of for course. this, including that pink prom dress that she wears at the end of the film. <laughs> he talked about Misery and also the 1999 film Audition. Oh, that's interesting because I thought like election vibes too, you know what I mean? Like, mm. a, like a dainty, sweet psychopath sort of yeah. in, like running around. So yeah, definitely in that era. But when you said also, Alexi, about how he prescribed... The, the Tarantino movies one mm. character that that Lola reminds me of is actually Quentin Tarantino's performance as Richard Gecko in From Dust Till Dawn wow because he's an utter psychopath and he's just unassuming and meant to be a sweetie pie but it would be like if both of the geckos were like both psychos you know like that's wow. that's the that's what I kind of like another thing that like brings up in my head 
Oof. Well, man, it's time that we get into our categories here on this podcast at the end of the episode. Uh, I want to start with a new little segment idea that I came up exactly from watching this movie. It is a new segment called Credit Where Credit Is Dude. And this is something interesting that you notice when you're watching the credits. If you stick around for the credits in the film, a name is going to capture your attention. Maybe someone's got a weird nickname. Maybe you see a role that you've never heard of before. Like, what the hell is a gaffer? Well, a gaffer is... The electrics and lighting. They work in that department if you don't know what that is. Uh, But here, listed as one of the additional grips in this movie. Grips is camera department, by the way. The people that handle the camera. And one of the additional grips in this film is listed as Sullivan Stapleton, who we just talked about as one of the lead characters, one of the lead actors in Animal Kingdom. I know. It's like... This is Austra- that's why Australian cinema is beautiful because you look in the credits of any movie, you're going to have such a fun time with Australian Psycho because it's just gonna mm-hmm. be, there's going to be riddled with surprises. And you think about it, like Sullivan Stapleton as an actor has this kind of manic energy mm-hmm. that would have like, you know, you can, you know, maybe in an alternate universe because he's a bit like more swole and a bit more intimidating, yeah. you could see him like psychopathically in a chair, like wanting to get out of this chair and mm-hmm. going mad about it. But yeah, it's such a like ship's passing the night, dude. Like him just handling the camera, like, I think I could do that. Yeah. Like, I think I could do I that. I checked it out. I like went onto it on IMDb. There's a different profile for Sullivan Stapleton under crew. Yeah. Uh, not connected to the actor, but they have a few credits in that crew using that additional grip. But I think it would have just been between gigs. He would have just like, you know, the guy works in the film industry. If you're between acting gigs, as if you're not going to go just do a couple of days work on a film shoot, earn some cash. Yeah, look, Soderbergh shot Magic Mike XXL and he didn't direct Mm -hmm. it. Like, you know, that's, that's, that's some cool shit. I mean, basically every actor I know, I've also met working on film shoots <laughs> just on holding, the crew. So holding like, a mic. It, and dude, it, it's every time. It's every time. Like there's always actors working on the crew here in Australia. You're like Hugo Weaving, what the fuck are you doing here? Yeah, he's my second AD on a few shoots I've done. Not too bad either. Ah, not too bad. All the Agent Smiths, they're all working down the AD line. We've got thirds and fourth ADs in the Smith family. Uh, But let's get to our Oscars, baby. We love to give out some Oscars on this podcast for things that we believe deserve some awards recognition. And the Oscars, a.k.a. the OZ, the Ozcars in this one. We're giving away Australian Oscars and we give out the first one to best character actor. And there is an easy, easy pick for me in this one. I mean, I did think about John Brumpton because he's done some great work in like Romper Stomper and stuff as well. Uh, But there is a guy in this movie that I absolutely adore, Andrew S. Gilbert, who plays the police chief in this movie, the kind of sheriff of this small town. And he is a truly classic Australian character actor who is always working. He pops up in everything, but most iconically for me, he plays Tony Twist in seasons three and four of Round the Twist, the dad of the Twist family, my favorite TV show of all time. Have you ever, ever felt like this? When strange <laughs> things happen, 
I've heard you go round round that twist, baby. <laughs> you go around that twist, baby. Uh, he's also won an AFI award for Kiss or Kill, which is a cool noir movie that I caught up with recently. He's in Look Both Ways. He's in The Dish. He's in so many things, including David Caesar's Idiot Box, Mullet, Dirty Deeds, and Prime Mover. All yeah. of the films I would have loved to talk about on this miniseries. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, his his entire resume has a stack of things that are going to intersect and then potentially be on the show. But, yeah, man, like, when you see him, it's for people like Alexi and I, when you're obsessed with Round the Twist as a kid, it's like, I can't unsee him as the dad from Round the Twist. I just can't. Yeah. Like, it's impossible. I'm sorry. Uh, it is what it is. And, yeah, so it's it's, it's all over. I'm not going to look at him as anything else. And if he's in a movie and he's good, more power to him. But, yeah, like, Round the Twist guy, he, he's got to get it. He's got to get it. Absolutely. And he's in some really great iconic Australian films. And I think he's fantastic as this character because of that Tony Twist energy. He brings that perfect like warm fatherly energy that is mired in disappointment and depression and it just is kind of like megastar casting to just go yeah get the dad to do this it is literally the anti-brumpton right like because with john brumpton mm-hmm. he like no offense john look i heard you're a big fan of the show and i hope that you're listening yeah. and enjoying it all australian character all actors australian, listen to this show I, like i know you guys it's a huge cachet of australian character actors listening but john <laughs> david fields on the train listening to this shit <laughs> david just going Field, oh yeah like, just can't like, wait to do this it is, shit. it is footy shorts like echo from two ants bless his <laughs> yeah. heart but um, but John Brumpton looks like a like a real creeper, and and mm. especially in this movie, they like heighten his creepiness to make him so creepy. The the blessing of having um to, to having Andrew S. Gilbert play the dad is like that's Burn just going. How can I implicitly say to the audience? This guy is not a threat. He's a good dude. Like, and it's like if you've ever had any remote passing familiarity with him as the dad in Round the Twist, like he's not a bad guy. I can trust this. Mm-hmm. This movie's already fucking with me enough. I don't need any more of it. I don't need any more stress. Absolutely. So yeah, it's a it's a ripper casting, and he's great in it. And like he, you know, has a bit to do. Blake, as our guest here on the podcast today, I would love to give you the opportunity to announce an Oscar winner. What is something you want to give an award to that you feel deserves it from this movie? Well, look, I was really tempted to say like Oscar for best discretionary uh, teacher's advice to stop fucking in the car park. Because I just, I was just love the delivery from that principal. Like, can you mm-hmm. get off school property? Because that is such a pain in my dick of all the paperwork I'm going to have to fill yeah. out if I formalize this mm-hmm. conversation. Get out of here. But to be honest, we I don't think we have talked enough about the fact that the Stones keep, like, their previous victims to, like, eat possums and shit and live yeah. under their house. And for me, the the iconic image in this movie is that beautiful two-shot, that shot and reaction shot of Xavier Samuel's character, like, looking despondent off into the distance, turning the torch off and on, and then he sees a pile of bones. So I want to award an Oscar for Best Improvisational Stepladder Construction for Xavier Samuel's <laughs> body pile that gets him out of the creepy yeah. stone dungeon. I think it's some of the most masterful construction in a film of uh, bodies, especially, <laughs> you know, they're kind of 
were spry and 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 mm. poo covered. Uh, they are and the prisoners. Gangly They're and gangly. dreaded. They got dreads. It's it's a really immaculate construction to get out of there. And uh, I want to I want to commend him deeply for his work uh, as from the academy. On a technicality, that actually is two Oscars to Andrew S. Gilbert for this one, <laughs> as he technically is part of that stepladder. He, he gets to be part of the stepladder. Bring him up on stage, Xavier. It's brilliant. Congratulations, Andrew. You nailed it on this one. Uh, Blake, before we wrap things up, we got to say, we have got the rights to this picture. Mm. We've got the rights internationally to reboot it and remake it in whatever fashion we want to. Mm. Uh, how do you think we bring more attention to a movie like this with the remake? It's really hard because, as you said, with Sean Burns... Um, like choice to like be inspired by Carrie and then make it inverse. Like the bad mom creates the psychokinetic Mm. psychopathic daughter. Um, But I kind of would, I almost want to see a mother, mother pairing for the loved ones. Like, like like take the psychosexual mother, father, daughter, weird Mm -hmm. uh, reverse Oedipal crap out of there. Yeah. And just make it mother daughter with like male prisoners, and like have the mother with like a like you know a, and and actually mm-hmm. ta- like make it more crazy and creepy. Like have more indentured servants that have gone yeah, missing. Yeah, okay. Um, like a little bevy for the mum, but like I I, I kind of think like flip it like that. Um, I think that that's a way that I would like to see it to to, to go mm-hmm. s- that extra level. Um, TV and- show or movie, baby? What do you reckon? TV show or movie? You know what? I think an anthology movie series, not TV. Wow, okay. I want, because this movie's 80 minutes. It's ferocious, mm-hmm. right? I reckon it's like yep. a, I, I think like the same deal um, that the incredible Academy Award winning director, um, Steve McQueen got like to make his mm-hmm. like little axe movies. Like I just yeah. want the loved ones. Small axe. Yeah. Like a oh, small axe. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> little axe. <laughs> little axe is for children. <laughs> <laughs> little axe is the condensed version. Um, but like the little drill series, um, I think is what yeah. like have it go across because I would, I think I would love to see like a couple of these movies, like one, for example, that kicks off with just someone escaping and we never know what happens. Yeah. Like they escape the town and they move mm. on to another suburb and town or whatever, and it's while the girl is quite young and we see them like a year after year. But that's yeah. how I would do it because I just feel like there's some fun stories to tell, like where the, where the girl's littler, and then when she grows up, you mm-hmm. can cast some new actors. Um, and just yeah, have, and dude. That, Let's go would... Big America with this shit. <laughs> I can absolutely Big America. Sarah Paulson as the mum. Oh, let's go Sarah Paulson. Yes. And then let's get freaking Millie Bobby Brown <laughs> as Lola, dude. Oh, that MBB. is how we're doing it. MBB. MBB, Millie Bobby Brown. <laughs> we got Millie Bobby Brown in here. And I really think that's like a great way, kind of bit of a prequel, bit of a sequel, bit of everything with this movie. Yes. But we make it all American Animal Kingdom TV show stuff. <laughs> well, what animal... Is, are we going to have any crossovers? Are we going to get like some, you know, someone from the Animal Kingdom TV show to be one of the torture victims for for oh, actually yeah. being... Ellen Barkin. <laughs> Ellen Barkin's the cop in this one. Yes. Yes. She comes in as the cop. Oh, and that's she's so like, rip. That's rips. She's trying to find them. Cops it in the head. Yeah, totally love it. 
Love yeah. that. Yeah, Ellen Barkin and also And then let's bring in one of like to, one of Ellen Barkin's famous co-stars uh to come in and play the <laughs> Xavier Samuel role. I think we've got to get someone that loves working with Ellen Barkin, has worked with her multiple times on stuff like Ocean's 13, on stuff like Sea of Love, and we get Al Pacino in there. Hoo-ha! I think that he's someone that I would love to see start out joyous. She's got a great drill. <laughs> and my head's all the way up in drill. it. Oh, please don't attack me. No one attack me. He's so old now, dude. He's It's mm. sad. I, I, I would am, love it. I, I wouldn't want him to he be got, tortured. You've seen him get de-aged. Let him get de-aged again. <laughs> digitally de-aged and digitally de-drilled. Yeah. <laughs> I would love it. <laughs> I just would love to see a drill go through his head with his troll doll hair flapping oh, around. Man. I think is why I want that so much. I, I just want that drill, but in the Nescafe ad he did. Like, that's oh, whatever that was. Whatever Victoria that was. Coffee, oh, excuse me. Sorry. This is not Pacino script. It's got coffee stains on it. Victoria Coffee, best coffee in the world to make stains on your scripts. My favorite out of all time, by the oh way. Oh, my God. Blake, thank you so much for joining me here today on the Australian Psycho miniseries. Uh, what have you got to plug, baby? Firstly, thank you so much for having me. Secondly, One Heat Meter Productions podcast uh, that I occasionally do with the man who I'm talking to right now, Mr. Alexi Toliopoulos, are doing imprint companions and a serious disagreements. Where we talk about DVDs and stuff like that. Yeah. But the main thing you got is like the best film podcast in existence right now in my opinion thank you so much that's zodiac chronicle which uh not one not two not three but four episodes are going to be dropping in the next couple of weeks including interviews with none other than new york times film critic manola dargis and and you know when you're doing a movie like zodiac uh you have to talk to arthur lee allen you have to talk to the (gasps) zodiac killer himself so john carroll lynch is gonna be on the show talking about his incredible performance so i've got some ripping episodes coming up Um, i've just been taking my time to assemble them so um if you're a fan Mm. of david finch's 2007 zodiac i have a 24 episode series that's charting the entire thing where i talk to film critics and performers and filmmakers who are involved and so it's uh, i hope you enjoy and check that out it's beautifully made. The editing is phenomenal on this podcast. It's the most immersive and deep diving, I would say, a film podcast has ever been. Especially like you got oh, the main you. man from One Heat Minute really <laughs> kind of extending that idea and diving so deep and personally into one of the great modern masterpieces of, I would say, psycho cinema. Oh, it's look, it's definitely got some psycho energy, let me tell you. So yeah, it's uh it's it was a it was a breeze to dip into some more psychopaths. because uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm hanging around with them frequently on that show. But I gotta tell you, the Zodiac Chronicle is one of the freaking best things going. Oh, so dude. if you haven't listened to it, you absolutely must. It's incredible f- film podcasting, like two a degree that has never been happened before. Like, oh. it's really, really special. Oh, thank you, man. And Blake, you're on the socials, you're on Instagram, you're on Twitter. What do people do to find you there? Just go to One Blake Minute, that is uh, on Twitter and on Insta and OneHeatMinute.com for everything else that I'm up to. And uh, yeah, that's that's me, my friend. Thank you so much for having me. 
My pleasure. If you want to hear more from us on Total Reboot, you can head on over to patreon.com slash Total Reboot and sign up for just five bucks a month to get access to a bunch of bonus podcasts from Cameron and I. Uh, and you can also find us at This Is Alexi and at I Am Cameron James if you want to chat to us about movies and podcasting and also at Total Reboot Pod on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, we'll be continuing the Australian Psycho series for a few more weeks. Uh, the next episode will either be about Bad Boy Bubby or something else. So you can follow us on the socials to keep up to date with what we're doing and plan your watch list around it. But Bad Boy Bubby will be coming up. And Blake, Oof. I know you've watched it again recently. Yeah, look, uh, I think Bad Boy Bubby broke Australian cinema. Like, we just didn't know what to do with that movie after Rolf Tahir made it. Um, And I think you put it best where you're like, it's one of the greatest, most experimental cinematic works of all time because the experiment worked. And I, Mm -hmm. I don't think it's, I don't think cinema has recovered since. Like, it's, it's, it, the movie has, everything so i can't wait yeah. to hear you guys talk about it because it's just so special and so especially weird and wonderful and it's on netflix right now like it's weirdly a very accessible movie these days which I, is kind of crazy netflix like remember the days like bad boy bubby was only on like a shitty vhs like you couldn't even mm-hmm. hire it at the video store you had to go to a library to get it and it was always trash because so many people had rented it yeah it's just such and a wild now movie. it's like the most accessible movie that there is you can just <laughs> flick it on right now oh my God. Uh, but that is down the line in the Australian Psycho miniseries. Until next time, I'll see you in the bush, baby. Mm-hmm.